when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the collapse of Carillion and where the government is to blame, plus looking at Emmanuel Macron's first presidential visit to the UK and what the huge future holds for Anglo-French relations. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, and Deputy Comment Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you enjoy this and other episodes of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to receive it on your phone, tablet or computer every Saturday morning. So on to the big political story of this week, which was the collapse of Carillion, the construction giant that held some huge private and public sector contracts. It transpires the company had just £29 million of cash left while owing having billion pounds of debt. And after begging the government for a £150 million loan, it fell under. Pertinent questions have been raised about whether the company was too big, had merged too many times, and whether it was foolish of Theresa May's governments to give it so many big lucrative contracts. Jim Picard, before we dive into the details, can you just give us an explanation of what exactly happened with Carillion? So Carillion has not been a household name except perhaps now that it's gone under. But it did come out of the ashes of other previous construction companies that were better well known. So people remember Tarmac, Alfred McAlpine and also Wimpy. And it was made up of elements of those businesses and has been doing perfectly well for several years under its own steam. And then suddenly in July last year, there was enormous profit warning that sent the shares absolutely tumbling through the floor. And in that profit warning, the company said that it was having major problems on four contracts. Three of them were public sector. There was a hospital in the Midlands, a hospital in Liverpool, a bypass up in Aberdeen. And there was also a construction contract on some kind of sports stadium in the Middle East. And all of those things meant it was having to write down its assets by about £800 million. And the controversy in terms of the government arises from the fact that only one week later, the government went ahead and awarded a contract worth £1.4 billion to build HS2. And then not long afterwards, in September, there was a second profit warning. And then in November, there was a third profit warning. And as you got close to Christmas, the company was really scrabbling to stay solvent. It took out loans at very high interest rate, above 10%, and things were looking very bleak. And what we saw before the collapse was a big meeting down in Canary Wharf involving about 200 people, the creditors, banks, advisors, Carillion. They failed to find a solution. And then basically the banks turned to the government and they said, look, we will only even consider pushing ahead with a rescue package if you step forward and help the company. And over the last weekend, the government said no. So George Parker, there's sort of a big question here about the role of the government. Should the government have propped up Carillion? Because as Jim said, there's a lot of big public sector contracts in there as well as private work there. But some people have argued, well, this is how capitalism works. That if a company falls over because it, it doesn't add up properly, then it should have just been left to go. Because, you know, Theresa May's government has been criticised this week for that. 
It has. I think all of us in the lobby were looking for the smoking gun that uh, was showed that the government was complicit in the collapse of Carillion or turned a blind eye to its impending collapse. And I think, as Jim was saying, a lot of the focus was on the contract awarded to Carillion shortly after the July 2017 profit warning. And there was a suggestion, and there was a suggestion all the way through the autumn, Vince Cable, the Lib Dem leader, kept on making the point that the government was feeding contracts to Carillion to keep it going, creating a false sense of confidence in the company, which then fed through, of course, to the supply chain, which has been really badly hit with workers being laid off. I think Theresa May's got a half plausible defence, which is basically that lots of companies issue profit warnings. Tesco issued a profit warning. It doesn't mean they're about to necessarily go to the wall. And if they hadn't offered contracts to Carillion while it was still a going concern, then it would have hastened its demise and then there'd been other sorts of questions being asked. So in a way, the government was caught between a rock and a hard place. But I think there are questions about the way contracts were overseen, whether the civil service has the capacity to scrutinise the contracts that are being let out. I think the other issue there, if I can button very quickly, is that in the case of the biggest one, the HS2 contract, it was signed off, or it was announced on July the 17th, and the profit warning was July the 10th. And you'd have to be quite naive to think that they suddenly fed the company such an enormous contract in the space of seven days. It was one that had been worked through over many months and in fact had been signed before the profit warning. So Chris Grayling, the transport secretary, was left with the dilemma of do they pull out or not? And I think what they did with that contract and with others was they ensured that there were multiple companies kind of in joint ventures thereby if a certain company, i.e. Carillion, hit the dust, then the other one would be out there to pick it up. I think, Jim, this obviously points towards the big political debate we've been having this week, which is the whole role of outsourcing and in private financial initiatives. And obviously the Labour Party have made a lot of political hay about this because Jeremy Corbyn's worldview is that as much as possible should generally be done by the state. And for him, this has been grist to his mill, saying that this is proof that these contracts, this outsourcing, a lot of them signed under the new Labour government, were actually wrong. And this is proof that all this stuff needs to be brought back in house. It gets very complicated here, but where Corbyn has a point, a very good point, was illustrated by the National Audit Office report that came out on Thursday. And that showed that basically the taxpayer got a very, very raw deal from PFI contracts, signed off mostly under new labour, ironically, but the taxpayer would have got a much better deal by just doing it in-house, a lot of these outsourcing contracts, and they're now very difficult to get out of. But where it becomes complicated is, firstly, Carillion's woes didn't come from PFI. They came from the other wing of its business, which is the straightforward construction wing, where various projects were too expensive. And secondly, shareholders lost their shirt, bankers lost their shirt, and yes, the taxpayer is providing some money to try and rescue the subcontractor hit by this, the government spending some money making sure that people are still being paid and all the rest of it. But what it doesn't illustrate is all those people you see on social media shouting last weekend about how their government bail out their fat cat Tory capitalist friends. Well, they, they didn't bail them out. So although Jeremy Corbyn may have a macro point, the specificities of Carillion don't necessarily support his argument. I think Jim's got a very good point there. There was an era of PFI 1 before it was reformed by George Osborne and rebranded PF2, where the problem was the government simply had too much money. Too much money was swilling around in the system and too much money was going into the hands of contractors on these inflated contracts. I think recently, a bigger problem has been the fact that public sector budgets are tightly constrained by years of austerity. And in the end, you've got companies like Carillion bidding for contracts on very, very low margins and companies competing for, for less and less public business. And that, in a way, I don't know whether Jim would agree with that, was what was partly behind what happened to Carillion, that they were actually operating on margins which were very prone to disaster if um, something went wrong with the project. Attention is turning now to the rest of the 
sector and other companies and whether they might find themselves in similar problems. And we reported midweek about a company called Interserve, who even more obscure than Carillion. You've probably never heard of them, but they do a lot of outsourcing deals. For example, they provide the toilets in the cabinet office by coincidence. And our story reported how the cabinet office was keeping quite a close eye on their financial state of affairs. They had two profit warnings in the autumn. They're being very heavily shorted by hedge funds and also some of their debts are trading below half of the face value. So the question marks there as well. But my point being, InterServe said one of the problems they've been having is that government policy in recent years has squeezed them in several ways. One way is the increase in the minimum wage. Another way was the apprentice levy. And if you're a very low margin business, those policies may not sound hugely damaging, but when you add them up, they can have quite a detrimental effect on profit margins. This is the interesting thing, George. I spoke to a former Conservative cabinet minister this week who was discussing the Carillion matter. And this person said that, first of all, we have to get over our ideological objection that everything has to be done in the private sector automatically. That's reflecting what was in the NAO report. But the other thing he said was, it's the oversight where the Cree issue matters. And, you know, we said in, in our FT editorial this week that they often the problem with PFI and outsourcing things is that civil servants are policy makers. They're not negotiators. They're not generally accountants. They're not there to look over these deals. They're there to, you know, make government work. So if the government is going to continue having PFI, PFI2, you name it, there needs to be much stronger and much more expertise to make sure these things can actually work both, you know, practically and in terms of um, the public finances. I think that's exactly right. And I was speaking to Ken Clark, the former Tory Chancellor this week and doing uh, the BBC's Week in Westminster, just in case your listeners are looking for another podcast to download and hear. Always a listen when you're on. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Well, you can hear Ken Clark's views on this, but he made exactly that point. He said the one of the big problems was the whole outsourcing revolution, which incidentally started with Margaret Thatcher back in 1980 when she started the tendering out of local government services, is that the civil service wasn't really adapted to deal with the huge volume and the complexity of the negotiations they were carrying out with the private sector. And they were up against people who were doing these deals all the time, who basically were running rings around them. So I think that's one problem. I think the other problem has been identified, and I spoke to David Willits about this, who was a big pioneer of the PFI. He was saying a lot of these projects simply don't transfer enough risk to justify the transfer to the private sector. Um, I mean, the other thing I'd say is about Labour's plans and what they would do. They obviously hate PFI. They hate outsourcing. They have promised to bring back the railways under public ownership, the energy system. And John McDonnell as well, during Labour conference in the autumn, he, big announcement, in fact, was that PFI would be looked at very hard. And he gave the impression that all PFI contracts would be taken in-house when he made his speech. When the details came out in writing a few minutes later via email, the McDonnell approach was actually much more cautious, which was that they would review the word of PFI and they would bring some contracts back in-house. And when you look at that NAO report from Thursday, you can see why it's not going to be easy to unwrap them. And in the case of just 75 PFI contracts they looked at, I think it would cost £2 billion to unwind them, even before you start thinking about compensations to companies involved. And it's all to do with unwinding interest rate wops. But it's it's incredibly complicated world. And I think it does feed the view among a lot of Labour supporters, particularly younger ones, that Labour in the past was far too close to the city and to big business. It allowed taxpayers to get fleeced. And a lot of those Corbyn supporters just have a different world view of the state and how it's a better way to provide services than the private sector. They they look at the BBC or they look at the NHS and, and they like that. They look at a lot of bad big business and they like it less. 
And ultimately, George, this is sort of the politics of populism in a way, because as, George, as um, Jim said, there was all this stuff going on about fat cat toys propping up their mates in the city or whatever mm. you want to call it about Kuhlian, which was simply not the case. But it doesn't really seem to matter because the message <laughs> Labour had was so clear and stark in terms of this is, you know, capitalism gone amok, it's not being done well, not in the interests of the people. We have a better solution. And people, you know, often f don't take notice of the detail of the kind of thing Jim was talking about. So all Labour has to really do is say the way the Tories and New Labour have done it is bad, too much big business, we'll do it better. And beyond that, the rest of it doesn't really matter. And I suppose this obviously poses the question that if and when Mr Corbyn's Labour Party ever gets into power, they will have to deliver on that. They will have proved that if they're going to do all these things by the state, they will be better. And that's going to be a problem. Yeah, it's a, it was a very, very simple message um, that Jeremy Corbyn was able to deliver at the election. It resonated with voters beyond just the very young, all the way up the age range. But I think there are problems facing both of the two main political parties when it comes to this. I think from a, a Conservative point of view, the lesson of the 2017 election was that the Conservatives have to remake the case for capitalism, something which they had forgotten to do over many de several this decades. this makes it much harder. And this makes it much harder. And in, in a way, they've let the argument, maybe let the argument drift for too long and it's too late to claw it back from Labour. But certainly they thought they won the argument about private versus public sector uh, and they plainly haven't. And I think the problem for the Labour Party is that this will just reinforce their worldview, uh, the corbyn Macdonald worldview, which is basically the public sector is good and the private sector is bad. And I think you speak to quite a few moderate Labour MPs who are worried that the Labour Party could get into a trap where they see everything in this black and white world and they go down some blind alleys with detrimental effects for the public services, which do actually benefit from innovation, new ideas, the kind of dynamism the private sector can bring. But can I say as well, lastly, the Carillion directors didn't really help themselves with the way that their remuneration worked. And the thing that people pointed out earlier in the week, which is, I suspect, going to be probed by various financial watchdogs, is the fact that the directors changed the rules in 2016 so that bonuses could not be clawed back in the event of the company going bust. They could only be clawed back if there was particular evidence of wrongdoing. And people will look at that and again they'll think, crony capitalism. There was much excitement in Britain this week as Emmanuel Macron made his first presidential visit. The latest Anglo-French summit was designed to take defence and security ties into the post-Brexit era. Further coordination of British and French troops was announced, as well as extra British cash for securing that tricky border at Calais. In return, Britain will receive the Bayou Tapestry for the first time in almost a thousand years. Gideon Rachman, let's begin with the symbolism of this meeting. So obviously, Emmanuel Macron and Theresa May are pretty different politicians cut from very different different cloths with very different worldviews but the optics of this seemed to sort of be all right there were no two tricky moments and there seemed to be some good news for both sides that came out of the summit yes i mean i i think that macron and may are quite different but they're not as different as say macron and trump or may and trump but they're still from the conventional world of politics so they will look at a summit as a way of trying to get positive messages out and that wasn't a given given that this is actually quite a difficult moment in the anglo-french relationship because the french are along with the Germans, are regarded in Britain as being on the hard line on Brexit, not going to give Britain this bespoke deal that it wants. And Macron, I think, rather effectively kind of diplomatic offensive with this gesture on the Bayer tapestry and with the stuff on defence where the British seem quite keen to, to cooperate with the French. However, I don't think a good summit should make us think that it's all going to be plain sailing in Anglo-French relationships. We're not getting to the really tough bits of the Brexit negotiations just yet, and those could go wrong and could cause quite a lot of ill feeling on both sides of the channel. 
Miranda Green, I think the typical British attitude was summed up as often by the front page of the Daily Mail, which was Le Stitcher, was how they described the visit because of giving all this extra money to Calais, which is a very tricky one because obviously the Le Touquet Agreement, which everyone loves to talk about, and the French love to threaten to rip up, which was made in 2003 and moves the British border into Calais. Now, this Mr. Macron had there was sort of talk about maybe we need a new treaty, but no one really wants that, particularly not with Brexit. So instead, we're giving over £45 million to strengthen the border, but to keep the border where it is there. But even for sort of the Daily Mail, that wasn't quite enough for this to not be seen as a British capitulation. Well, that's right. And of course, the Bayer Tapestry is the narrative of a British defeat (laughs) by a continental power. So it's quite uh, by the French, indeed, and the Norman Conquest. And Calais, of course, you know, was once in British ownership and then had to be given back to the French. So all of these kind of historical touchstones remind us, unfortunately, of our sort of subservient position in these negotiations. And I I think Gideon is quite right to say that this successful summit doesn't mean it will be plain sailing in relations as we go forward because, of course, we're now in a situation where Paris is the direct competitor to London, even more than Frankfurt, for a lot of the banking activity that has fueled the tax revenue of the UK for the last few decades. So we will be in a kind of slightly combative relation with France as the Brexit negotiations move forward. And I mean, I've heard amazing anecdotes, I think we probably all have, from people involved in the effort to protect the City of London's interests during the Brexit negotiations, about the extent to which the French are laying down the red carpet, the best food and drink, a massive charm offensive for city banks to try and lure a lot of this activity towards Paris when the moment comes. And so far, it is going quite well for them in that respect. So I think it's quite right to notice the cordial relations and the initiatives on, for example, security and defence. But of course, that has been going on for several decades. And the French, with their well-known mistrust of NATO, always like these sort of bilateral defence relationships. Yeah, and I think one of the big questions over the next year will be to what extent will you be able to keep this positive relationship on defence on a completely separate track from what are likely to be acrimonious discussions on Brexit because you referred to the Daily Mail earlier which is a convenient shorthand for a certain strand of opinion in Britain and I'm almost surprised that it hasn't happened yet that nobody has said well hang on why are we cooperating with the French on defence when they are busy shafting us on the city and so on and I think that strand of opinion will come to the fore. Although of course actually for the reasonable Brexiters I would say they're quite positive about this idea because it's a demonstration of how you can rebuild bilateral relationships Mm. post-Brexit. So actually, in the last 24 hours, quite a few Brexity commentators here in the UK have looked quite favourably on this May-Macron development. Yeah, I think a lot depends actually partly on how the British government spins it. I mean, I was surprised by the extent to which they were able to, when we signed up to this massive payment to the EU, cut off the potential backlash by saying, oh, it's all fine. And because the Brexiters really want us out, they're almost prepared to swallow anything. I was speaking to a Brexiter MP last night and he basically said to me that the deal that was made is all fine. The only part of it they were not sure about was the idea that Macron says that we have to take more migrants from Calais because he said, well, after all, the whole point of Brexit is that we decide our immigration policy, not Mr. Macron. But in terms of the money, they all sort of seem it's perfectly sensible to have the border in Calais and it's actually not a problem for us to put more money there because it's either that or huge sums and disruption of moving it across the channel. But to just come back to this point about the city, Gideon, our 
colleague and fellow podcaster George Parker asked Mr Macron this question, will there be a special deal for the City of London in Brexit? And he basically said, no, that was very pretty straightforward. And that's obviously the French position, because as Miranda was saying, they want to make Paris an attractive destination. But on the flip side, the chap who's in charge of luring business to Paris was said this week, actually, the City of London will still remain the prime financial centre. So what it seems to me is there will be some business that moves from the City of London abroad, but it's the question of where it goes, not if it goes. So is it going to go to Frankfurt? Is it going to go to Paris? Is it going to go to Dublin? And Paris seems to be doing all it can for what business does leave to get up as much of that as possible. And that then feeds into the Brexit red line. Sure, sure, naturally enough. But that they'll be doing that and the British would be doing the, the reverse and indeed have done the reverse in the past. I don't think that the French have forgotten David Cameron's slightly ill-judged remark about laying out the red carpet for French financiers who wanted to come to London. And I think what... Christi- that was during Francois Hollande's yeah. uh, presidency. And a, lot, and a lot did come to London, Absolutely. of course, and, then, and a lot still are there. You know, I will believe that the advantage has completely switched the other way. When you have 200,000 British expatriates living in the 16th <laughs> arrondissement in Paris, as you currently have 200,000 French people living in South Kensington and around there. So there's a lot to happen. There's a lot of shifting to be done. But, you know, I don't think that Macron would accept your characterization that this is all to do with getting economic advantage. I mean, I think they, they will try and do that. But they make this argument as well, which is not entirely without merit, that it's also to do with the integrity of the single market. That, sure, I mean, Macron actually didn't say the city can't have access. He said, be my guest, but be my guest under the current rule. So this is obviously the key point going forward, Miranda, that we're the second phase of negotiations slowly approaching us down the track. Mrs May's government is still having discussions about what kind of end state relationship we have, and we still really have no more idea than we did a couple of months ago about what's going on on that front. But clearly, France is going to play a much bigger role in this second phase than in the first phase. And I think the big question everyone in London is watching is how will the integrity of the EU27 hold? Now, Mr Macron is what uh, Donald Trump might call a globalist. He takes a very kind of world view of things and, as Gideon said, is very much focused on the rules, underlining the rules-based community. So he's not, doesn't want to breach them for the UK. But there will be other countries that would happily see them breached and that will be a test for him as well as for Britain. Well, it will, but the initiative politically and diplomatically is very strongly with Macron at the moment. I mean, this is also partly, of course, because Germany is unable at present to form a governing coalition. So Merkel, who has been the significant figure heretofore, is now sort of hamstrung more by her own political constraints at home. There is this kind of interesting subplot, as it were, about whether if Merkel succeeds in forming her German coalition, there might be a much more kind of integrationist agenda in terms of the EU from Germany as well because of the SPD's position on that. So the the action, as it were, currently seems to be with Paris. But if it flips back to Berlin, it will be different from the Berlin that we've seen in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you rightly say the big question for the next phase of talks will be, can the Brits begin to break down this EU unity that they faced in phase one? Now, it wasn't that hard for the EU to be unified in phase one, because essentially what they were saying is we'd like a lot of money from Britain, which they and we all, gave a lot of money, which they can all agree on. When differential economic interests start emerging, uh, that will be a bit more difficult. That said, I think that, you know, France and Germany will set the tone with the European Commission. They're the big countries and they're, they're the ones who are in, at the moment most insistent on no exceptions, no bespoke deal. But I think you'll see tensions even within those countries because, you know, Mr. Macron, when he visited Calais, talked about protecting the interests of Calais. Now, Calais economy depends on cross-channel trade. So 
you know, maybe even the French will begin to think about, well, you know, probably we have some kind of interest in seamless manufacturing uh, transition. So the British have some opportunities, but it's going to be very, very tough sledding. And, And I think also the British have seemed so far to have been relying far too much on this idea of divide and rule, which hasn't worked. So you know, we've got to hope that the UK has a better strategy than that. And also, actually, I think that the Europeans may give us the, the manu- seamless manufacturing because they actually have a massive trade surplus in that. So if they can get the manufacturing seamless, but services drop out, which is the, under the current arrangement, the Canada Plus arrangement, that's all good for them. And finally, I've got to ask you both, one of the things that came out of this summit was a proposal from Boris Johnson following on from Boris Bikes. Boris Islands, he's now proposed the Boris Bridge, which said that we actually want to encourage more trade across the channel and build a big bridge across the channel from England to France. Uh, it would be sort of 20-odd miles long. Uh, it would obviously be a feat of engineering. Gideon Miranda, are you in favour of a bridge across the channel? Boris has, a, as you point out, kind of reputation for proposing crazy infrastructure schemes. There was a garden bridge, which was going to be across the Thames, a rather smaller stretch of water, which never got built. So I don't have much confidence this will ever happen. He also wanted to build an airport, I believe, in the Thames estuary. And these schemes, as Gideon says, don't really come to fruition. I, I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but I think this suggestion might be a little tiny bit of sort of distraction technique from some of the other things that are going on. Well, we'll see if the bridge ever gets built or move beyond this chatter i think you both might have a point on that front that's it for this week's episode of ft politics thank you very much to all my guests for joining if you want to hear even more about where the brexit negotiations are heading then don't forget to look out for our brexit unspun podcast which is available on all the usual podcast app and this week's discussion is about what to expect in the talks coming up we'll be back next week for another installment of ft politics which was presented by sebastian payne and produced by madison derbyshire until next time thanks for listening When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.